0: The air is better here than it is in Southern California, so I haven't been taking my, my asthma medicine, which keeps my lungs, I guess, uh, kind of like open, but because of that, I have a lot more phlegm now, because I don't want to, so, <clears throat> excuse me if I cough, I know it's really unattractive, um, but it's, it's really good to be with you guys, I've uh, started taking preaching, cl- preaching classes since I was last up here, so um, maybe I know a little bit more about what I'm doing, I'm still a... Rank amateur, but I uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to come and speak with you guys. So um, we're going to look at um, one of our, one of uh, I think one of the most significant passages of of the Bible. Um, and if you guys remember our friend Eric Chabonet, I had uh, our friend at the church in Milpitas who came to speak at our retreat at, with CCCAC a while back. Um, I had breakfast with him a few days ago and. Um, he went through the same passage, and he spent, like, five hours going through it. And I'm going to try to cover it in half an hour, which is, uh, uh I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm try, going to try my best not to, like, short thrift you, um, because I think there is so much in here, but I am going to condense it down, and I think there's so much that God has to say to us right here. So, uh, with that, will you stand with me as we turn there? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 20. This is in your bulletin. Let's stand as we read the Word of God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. God, we just ask that you would use your word to pierce into our hearts and uh, speak to us, and we trust that you will uh, will work here. Your Holy Spirit will uh, take the words of your words and and uh, not only apply it to our lives but to. Um, just impresses so deep into our hearts that we can't help but respond in worship. And I pray that you'll be worshipped more than anything else here in these next few minutes, God. And uh, we pray that this would be glorifying to you, that all our thoughts and all our attention would be centered around you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. All righty. So, one of the things I really appreciate about just what's being taught in our Sunday school class and up here in the pulpit is that Christ is the center of the scriptures, that Christ is the center of all of history. And as we look at the Bible, we see that from the very beginning to the very end, all of it points to Christ. And here Christ is talking about being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets uh, and here he's saying this. He's talk- He's uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about these things. And he's saying to, these, to the people that are listening, they, um, they, they know, uh, they've read the Old Testament. They've heard what it's about. And he's saying here, he's making an astonishing claim. He's saying, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So what's going on? Uh, Jesus, he comes on the scene and... People are, they're, they're, he's popular. People are following him. They're listening to what he's, what he's having to say. But the relig- religious leaders, they're, they're, uh, they're concerned. They're going, they're saying, you know, what's going on? What's up with this Jesus guy? It seems like he's starting something new. It seems like he's trying to overthrow the religious system. He's trying to, he's trying to, uh, do away with everything that we've been taught. And Jesus is saying here, by he's saying, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm actually, I've actually come to fulfill them. So, what are the law and the prophets? What are the law and the prophets? It, it's uh, the Old Testament, basically. It's everything that the the Jews have been reading, the uh, starting with uh, Genesis to Malachi. Um, they've been reading about this, and the, the, the what's being taught here, and what's being said, and what's being prophesied this was understood as the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying, these things that you guys have read, that you guys have heard about, I am coming to actually fulfill them. So I didn't, I didn't come to fulfill the law. I came, I'm, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. The Pharisees thought, the, the religi- religious leaders thought that Jesus was coming to abolish the law. Um, the Pharisees, remember the, uh, our friends the Pharisees, uh, these had such an influence. They had such a grip on the religious life uh, of the people that Jesus was speaking to. And here they are, they're worried. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to do away what's being done. I'm not coming to start something completely new. I'm taking what you've been hearing, and I'm taking it, and I am fulfilling what is being said. So, Jesus is actually one-upping the Pharisees. He's one-upping uh, the religious leaders, and he's saying, I'm coming to complete, complete what is being done. So what does Jesus mean when he says he came to fulfill the law? Uh, it's, it means to bring to completion. If you guys have ever seen a building being built, you, know, you see all the cranes, and you see the uh, the the foundation being laid. Uh, right now, my, my school, they're building a new building. So what they've done is they've built, or they they've they've cleared all the trees in part of a field, and they've started digging away at it. They've dig, and they uh, they've dug maybe like twenty, thirty feet into the ground. What they're doing now is they're setting a foundation, and in the next few months they're going to put, they're they're going to start building on top of that, and. If we think of fulfillment in terms of this, it means that Christ, He's He's saying that something's being something has been been built and it's being built up, and what I'm doing is I'm finishing everything. Uh, so people were thinking when they're, when Jesus is saying, "I did not come to abolish the law," they're thinking, "Oh, is he tearing the building down? Is he just going to do away do away with it completely?" Jesus is saying, "No, I'm actually taking what's there and I'm going to finish it. I'm going to bring it to completion." So how is Jesus doing this? How is Jesus fulfilling the law? We're going to get a little bit technical. Uh, so if you guys want to write it down, or uh, with, with just a, in the next few minutes, I want to take us through how is Jesus fulfilling the law? How is he bringing these things to completion? So if you want to write it down, um, just uh, Jesus fulfilled it morally. He fulfilled the moral law. And this means that it, it, we went over the Ten Commandments over the summer. Uh, this was how people should be, how they should act. Uh, he went over the um, the judicial law. The judicial law. This is how... Um, how... How... The, the rules that were set, how... Uh, when people broke them, wh- how, what was done to deal with that? Um, and the ceremonial law. Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. This is how people were, rela- were, were to relate to God. So we see in uh in the old testament when it says that you are to do this and this and this um for the sake of my name um that this is a ceremonial law this is god telling people okay these are the things you need to do to maintain a relationship with me so this these were how these were things how to relate to god so we've got the moral law the judicial law and the ceremonial law uh so how did he do this i'm just going to take those i'm going to take one example from that to give us an idea of how Christ came to fulfill the law. So, uh, if, you, if you guys have heard of the Day of Atonement, uh, a few weeks ago, the, the Jews around the world, the practicing Jews, they celebrated something called the Yom Kippur. The Yom Kippur, have you guys heard of that? It's the Day of Atonement. And what the Day of Atonement was, was this was a day that was set aside when the priest were to take an animal for the sins of the people, and they... And they, they, took the, they took the animal and they sacrificed it in the temple. And this was done because the people of Israel, they sinned. And God said, because of your sin, something, someone needs to be punished. And because God was merciful, he said, I'm going to take, you are to take an animal, you are to sacrifice it for the sake of your sins. Because every time you sin, blood has to be spilt so year after year after year, the Jews are, are doing the Day of Atonement. They are killing an animal for the sake of their sins. And even now, the Day of Atonement is practiced by Jews. And what, how is this significant to us? Does the Day of Atonement apply to us? Why do we not kill animals? I mean, when was the last time like, my, Pastor Michael took, a, took a, a sheep or a lamb and he took it up here, he took a knife to it and slit its throat? I don't think that I, unless you guys are doing something crazy while I'm gone, that hasn't happened, right? <clears throat> and I don't think that we're going to do it in the future. Why is it significant to us? It's because Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ came to... to the, the lamb that was killed, the, the animal that was killed on the Day of Atonement, uh, was ultimately... Uh, that role was ultimately fulfilled by Christ. So... This was done year after year after year, and every time the Israelites sinned, they knew that they had d- done something wrong, they had offended God, and they had, punishment had to be paid. And how, if, if you guys have heard of um, Pavlov, if you guys have studied uh, psychology in, in college, if you guys heard of, I think his name's Ian Pavlov. The, uh, what he did was, if you haven't heard, the, if you haven't heard the, uh, the name, you might have heard of his experiments. It's a, it's a famous experiment where he, Pavlov had these dogs, and, and he, uh, he did an experiment. He said, every time I ring a bell, I'm going I'm to put food in front of these dogs. And then these dogs would eat, and then day after day after day, he would have these dogs. He'd ring the bell, and food would be there for them to eat. He'd ring the bell food would be there for him to eat he'd ring the bell food would be there for them to eat and, and they would eat <clears throat> and and one day he said okay what happens if i don't if i ring the bell but i don't i don't put the food in front of them so pavlov tried it he rang the bell and the dogs they heard the bell and automatically they salivated because they associated the ringing of the bell with food so it just so, became so ingrained in their mind that they every time they heard a bell, they thought that there'd be food there, and and this is kind of what God was doing in the Old Testament, is He is preparing these these His people. Every time they sin, they expect that something needs to be killed. Every time they sin, they expect to be they expect something to to pay the sacrifice for their sins. So we see that in the Old Testament, don't we? We see that they every time God tells them, "Hey." don't do this they do it and okay don't do this they do it again and again and again and every time they they're not able to keep the law and every time they know i've sinned i something needs to pay the price for this so what's the significance of this of of this it's um it's it means that as sinners we constantly sin we we fall into patterns of sin and we know that A single sacrifice, if a lamb were to be killed, if we were to follow rules, that's not enough. We need something more. So we hear the bell when we sin, and we go, I need to be punished, or something needs to be punished. What is God doing about that? So Christ came to fulfill the law. Um, and will as we go into these next few verses, we'll see what is the significance of that. Um, just a few more things, uh, on the side note. How did, how else did Christ fulfill the law? He came to fulfill the law prophetically. So remember, uh, that all the, all the Old Testament speaks of Christ. We see especially one of the, ma- one of the major prophetical passages is Isaiah 53. Remember when it talks about the suffering servants, um, by his wounds were healed. Jesus' name is not mentioned there anywhere. But uh, we know what he's talking about because he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law prophetically, and um, and also typologically. Uh, I, I think I know that uh, Michael talks about this a lot. Is how has Christ? How is the Bible pointing to Christ? Um, Christ is the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. Because what Adam failed to do in fulfilling his purposes as a human, uh, Christ did completely and perfectly. Uh, what about Moses? Moses was um, a prophet, was a was a servant of of God, but he did not. He was a sinner, and he never saw uh, the promised land that he was supposed to lead his people to. But Christ, he spoke perfectly, and he fulfilled. What Moses cannot and we also see this in uh, people like David the the king the man of God who was a sinner and he couldn't fulfill his law as a king perfectly but Christ came and is came to fulfill the law um, as a king perfectly Uh, and we see this over and over in the Old Testament is that everyone is doing something for God everyone is a model of something and Christ is saying Everything that these people failed at, I am fulfilling. Their role, I am fulfilling perfectly. So we see in this passage in verse 17, when Christ says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we're seeing this. Christ came to fulfill the law prophetically and morally and judicially and ceremonially. And it matters so much to us today because it means that all these things, all the sacrifices that the Jews had to do, all the punishment that had to be done, we don't deal with that anymore because there is a man that fulfilled the role of the one taking the punishment, of the one being the the perfect messenger, of the one that's fulfilling everything that God has enacted. So let's move on to our next point. Christ affirms the Word of God. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished so what is being said here when christ says this christ is affirming the word of god he's affirming the word of god so he's saying the law of prophets yes they are right they are true uh, and everything that's being written here will be fulfilled he mentions something called the iota the iota if uh if you guys know anything about the greek alphabets uh for our seminarians we we know that the iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and Christ is saying, "The smallest letter of everything that's written in, the, in this book is true." And wh- how does it matter to us today? If you guys are in college, especially if you're going to a secular university or college, or maybe even high school, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure like uh, how much they talk about this in high school nowadays, but they will make fun of the Bible. They will say, they will ask you, uh, "Do you really believe?" What's being said here, do you really believe that God created um, the heavens and the earth and he just spoke everything into being and it came to be? Do you really believe that a guy named Noah was swallowed up by a whale and he stayed in there for three days? Do you really believe that a man named Jesus was born of a virgin and he, uh, he died and he rose again and he started a church? Do you really believe all this foolishness as Christians? What do we say? We do, because we believe that every word of the book, every, wor- every word in this book is true. And people, even some people calling themselves Christians will say, well, you know, you can't take everything that, that the Bible says seriously. Do you really believe everything that it says? You know, it's, it's not culturally relevant. Uh, it doesn't go along with what we think should be. So they'll say, you know what, um, there's some things in here that is good. There's some things in here that we don't agree with, so we're just going to... Th- Toss it aside, say it's a product of the culture of that time. But Christ is saying, no, everything in here is true. Every word is right, even the parts that we don't agree with. It's attacked, like Christ says, when it's attacked, it's true still. Um, a second implication of Christ affirming the Word of God is just to be honored. This is why we stand. In, when we read the Scriptures, it's in reverence to the Word of God. And we hold the, sta- the Bible as a standard for the church. You know, like, if if Michael um, were to just disappear from this church, or if, uh, or, or if Sean were to disappear, or if I were to disappear, or if uh, anyone else who could read from this book were to disappear, this church would still be okay because it's built on the Word of God. And we believe that everything... That it says that we follow and it prescribes how we do church church today. And um, it's, it's, it means that uh, we honor it. It means if you guys, I don't, have you guys heard any thunder the past few days with, with all this? All right. Well, if you guys have, I'm sure you guys have all heard thunder, right? It's especially uh, when it, it seems like it's right above you and it just, the, the thunder just roars. And it kind of sends a shiver up your spine. You're like, wow. Like, you either get scared or you're just in awe of it. Like, I've, a few weeks ago, it was raining in Southern California, and, um, I woke up to the sounds of just, boom, And it seriously seemed like the thunder was right above me. And I was like, oh, dude, this is awesome. Um, and then, like, and then you start seeing, like, flashes of light around you, and you're like, okay, maybe, like, it's not so great that, like, I'm so close to whatever this is. The Word of God is like this. The Bible, the, the Bible asks this in Isaiah. It says, um, do you tremble at the Word of God? The way that someone would tremble at the sound of thunder, way way more than that. We need to tremble at the Word of God because this is God speaking to us. And there are times when when we'll read the Bible for comfort, but there are times when... Have you guys ever experienced this? When you read the Bible and you just go... I don't. I got. I need to put it down because it is rocking me. I don't want to hear what it's saying. And this is uh, This is when it comes down to us. Like, one of the things that I I really love about this church is just that the teaching is so good. Um, I, I really I really appreciate just the stuff that Michael says and um, Sean Sean says and uh, you had Perry a few weeks ago speaking. It's just awesome teaching, but one of the things that's uh, one of the things that that I that pops into my mind is that I'm like I become prideful of our church. I'm like, IGC, you know, our teaching is just so much better than like other churches I've been to. I'm just so proud of our church because um, we do things um, that are more significant. But then I was thinking about this. and I'm like, but do I really follow that? Do I really believe that in a way that shows in my life? Do I really do I really obey the Word of God, and there are people, good people, our brothers and sisters in other churches around the area that will that, that, that go to churches that don 't teach as well as we do, and they don uh, 't they, they do things differently than than we do, but they obey the Word way better than i do and I was just I was, I was thinking about this and I was convicted i 'm like i 'm proud of our church, but am I do I really does it really reflect in the way that I live uh one of the things that, that we're learning learning in seminary is uh something called exegesis I'm taking an exegesis class and what that means is uh, here we we do uh we we read the bible and when we prepare the messages uh we 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 do exegesis on it and what that means is we pull out the meaning of the text it means ex ex means we uh uh external it means out uh we pull some, pull the t- meaning out of the text. And when we're studying, we look at what the Bible means in its context. And we try to communicate what the Bible is truly saying. What, how can we be most faithful to what's being taught here? But there's another way of reading the Bible, and it's called eisegesis. Eisegesis, E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. Eisegesis. And this means that we read, we come, into, we come to the Bible with our own with our own uh, preferences, with our own, own um, doctrines, maybe. And we'll go to the Bible and say, all right, let me look through here, and let me see if I can find a way to make the Bible justify what I want to believe. This is how cults get started, right? The, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe that Jesus is God, so they'll come in with their doctrine, and they'll say, uh, we're going to look in um, John one one, where it says the word uh, was God. Uh, Jesus, when it says Jesus is the Word, and the Word uh, was God, and the or the um, well, let me just turn there. Let me not get mixed up. Um, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read it. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and and these Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll take their eisegesis and they'll say, uh, "We don't believe that Jesus is God, but what we see here is it actually says that Jesus is God. So let us let's change something. Let's let's try to find a way around it." Um, the the Mormons they do the same thing. They'll say, "Okay, we've start, we have certain beliefs, so we're going to go from there and look into the Bible and say see, see how it can justify what we believe." Um, but we don't do that, right? We we start with no. We try to be as objective as possible and say. Can I really find that in this word? Can I really say that what, can I really, can I really, uh, pull that meaning out of the text if I, if I'm being faithful to the word? Uh, and this does not just limit, it's not limited to the way that theologians do it. It's not limited to the way that religious leaders do it. It's, li- it's, we all do this to some extent. And we can all justify our behaviors with, with the Bible, if we try hard enough, right? So people can justify divorce, they can justify adultery, they can justify their selfishness, they can justify their um, hoarding, their resources, they can justify, people have justified slavery with the Bible by doing eisegesis, by saying like, all right, let me start here, and I am going to, um, you know, I, I believe... That God is saying something in there, but let me let me start with my own thoughts first. Uh, or I'm 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 living in sin, and I don't want to leave that this life of sin. So, but I still, you know, I got to find a way to justify it. So they go, I'm going to go to the Bible and let's see what it says about that. And if you try hard enough, you can justify anything with the Bible. This is eisegesis of our lives. One of my uh, one of my friends at Talbot, he is uh, gay, and um what I really appreciate about what he's done is he understands that he has a struggle with homosexuality. And he reads the Bible, and he says, uh, it's pretty clear that the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. Um, so what does he do? Uh, he, I mean, if you guys have ever talked to a homosexual, uh, it's hard for them. It's really, really hard for them to, to especially if they're Christians, to, to, to go man, like, how do I honor God, um, but I'm still living with these desires, I'm still living with um, these wants. And what he's done is he says, you know, I believe that the Word of God is true, and because of that, I'm going to submit myself to the Word. And these struggles that I have as a homosexual, I'm giving them to God. And when it says that homosexuality is wrong, I believe it's wrong, and and I'm going to live my life um, without, with, with, still with these desires, but I'm not going to act on them. With the with grace of God, I'm not going to act on them. And this is a perfect example of someone who takes the Word of God, he honors it, and he says, the Bible stands in judgment over me, and I don't stand in judgment over the Bible. I don't choose what's right and wrong. I don't find a way to to justify my behavior i still struggle with sin i'm talking talking personally now i still struggle with sin um and there are times when i just read the bible i'm like oh ah no i don't like that because it challenges the way i'm living but the bible isn't concerned about my preferences it's not concerned about our preferences it's not concerned about us fitting in in the world it's not concerned about what we want the Bible is concerned about God's character it's about God's story it's about his it's about his glory and the Bible stand in judgment over me and you know and we need to be check our hearts and say the, the word is it am I really listening to it am I really obeying it uh, there's so many times when we don't and we need to check ourselves do we submit to the Word of God and there are times when... Uh, I'll, I, like, there, there are some things that I wish the Bible didn't talk about sometimes because it would really save a lot of frustration and energy and uh, and, and argumentation. But to me, there's some things that just seem... They're black and white uh, to me. And, well, do I, do I want to take the easy road and say, well, I'm just going to try to explain it away? Or do I say... Uh, the Bible says something, and no matter how hard it is, I'm going to obey it. I'm going to trust that God is saying something through it, and that God is true, and God is wise in saying these things. So what posture do we take before the Word of God? Do we submit, Will we submit to it despite how hard our flesh fights against it? So as we move on, one thing to keep in mind is this. The Pharisees, they're hearing Jesus talk about this. They're, they're going, right on, right on, all right. The Word of God is true. Um, the Word of God, uh, we, should, we should read it, we should listen to it. But then as we move on to this next verse in Matthew 5, he's saying this, he, reads, he says this. <clears throat> verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of, of heaven. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The, the, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they had 613 laws. They, they, they figured it out. They had 613 laws to keep, and they spent their days making sure, okay, let me make sure that I don't break these commandments. Let me make sure that I'm keeping this law. And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds the, the scribes and the Pharisees, um, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus is, is say is he saying all right? They, these guys have six hundred thirteen laws, uh, and it, it went so far as to go as you know, uh, they, they, the the Pharisees they they when the word said that they should tithe something, they went actually into their drawer into their drawers and into their spice racks, and they said, I'm going to tithe ten percent of everything. I'm going to go into my jar of pepper. And, you know, if it says, if I have, like, 100 milligrams of pepper, I'm going to give 10 milligrams. If I have 83 oregano leaves, I'm going to take 8.3 oregano leaves and put it in the offering plate. Uh, it went so far as to say, like, they, they were big on keeping the Sabbath when we shouldn't work. And the, these Pharisees, they said, if, if a tailor is doing work, and the next day he leaves, he leaves his office, um, but he has a pin stuck on his clothes... They would say that guy is breaking the Sabbath because he has a work-related item on his person, and said this: these people are breaking the law. And this is and the scribes. Jesus mentions the scribes. These guys are the ones that that, uh, that knew the word inside and out. They they read and they copied the word of God. And Jesus is saying. If your righteousness is not better than that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean for the Pharisees who had 613 laws? All right, you people now, there's 614 laws you need to keep. Make sure you keep those all perfectly. Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus's point is not that we should try it's not that we look for another rule to keep. What Jesus is saying is that we cannot be better. It's impossible to be, for your righteousness to exceed the... The, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and why? Why is Jesus demanding demanding these things? His His demand goes beyond um, mere actions. If we read further on in the in Matthew five, we'll see that Jesus talks about um, about uh, lust, and he talks about anger, and he says, if you're angry with someone, you've you've killed that person, you've committed murder. If you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Uh, Jesus. Keeps on one upping, uh, one upping everything that's being taught by these religious leaders, and he's saying, "It's not enough that you do these things; you have to want to do this. You you have to want to be righteous." And this is the impossible part. Like, do we? Is there any time when we keep the law perfectly, and that includes wanting to keep the law, like to have delight in everything that we do? Uh, let me give, just give you give you an illustration. For for me, like, or, well, let me take a married couple. Um, I'll take Pastor Michael and his wife, since they're not here, since she's not here. Uh, Michael, he is a husband, and he, as a husband, he, there are certain things that he needs to do. So what, what if, for example, if he were to be a loving husband and he went back to his home today after church, and he uh, he came home with a dozen roses for for Christina. And he says, Christina, I've, I, I have someone to babysit Judah, and I know that you've been tired. Um, just don't worry about Judah for the day, and uh, put on your best dress. I've, I'm, I'm taking you out to a five-star restaurant in San Francisco, and I've got a limo waiting for you outside. Uh, and so they go on a date, and then they, they just have a great time, and they, they do whatever lovey-dovey things that married couples do. Um, and at the end of the night, Christina goes... My, Michael, why did you do these things for me? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so appreciative of it. I'm so thankful for it. And Michael goes, I did these things because it was my duty as a husband to do these things for you. That's the wrong answer, isn't it? Isn't the answer supposed to be because you're Christina, because you're my wife, because I love you, and it makes me happy to do these things for you. This is the attitude That we need to have when we have, when we obey God. We have to want to do these things. These duties that we read in the Bible, um, keeping commandments and going out and being salt and light and obeying the law. It's supposed to bring us that much happiness, but it doesn't, does it? Unless something changes our hearts. Uh, this, this is the conundrum that's, that's, that Jesus presents, he's saying like, unless your righteousness, righteousness exceeds the law, of the, or the, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the conundrum is this, if you break the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But, and even if you keep the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven if your heart is not right before God. And what Jesus demands is impossible, because perfect righteousness is being demanded and all these things, the scribes and the Pharisees were talking about the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that these things are true. These things are good. But what is their ultimate purpose? The law is good, but the law's real purpose is to show us that we cannot keep the law. If you guys have ever, um, had a list of rules and you want, that you want to keep, you just always end up breaking it, right? And there's no way that, uh, like, for example, um, I go to, um, a, a Christian University and they have a list of rule books and if compared to uh, other maybe secular universities they, this one says like okay, you have to um, dress modestly and there's no cussing or swearing or drinking or smoking or um, or like premarital sex stuff like that um, and there's this huge list of rules and and uh, i don't i'm pretty sure i've broken one or two just. I say things sometimes that I shouldn't be saying. Um, what you, the, the law that God gives us is way more demanding, and we none of us have ever kept it as we should. And the point of that is to make us realize that we need something outside of ourselves to let, be the perfect righteousness for us. And I think here in this here in this in this building today in this room. There are people that will go. All right, I've, I know what the word of God says, and I know that I've broken it, and I know that I am guilty. And when Jesus says I need to be even better, when I need that there are standards I need to meet, I'm helpless. I have nothing that I can do. There are people like that in here. I'm one of them. And there are people that will go. You know, well, I, I keep the law pretty well. You know, I'm moral. I don't, I, I, I give, I give of myself and of my time and. I go to church uh, twice a week and I do devotions. And we think, because of that, um, I'm okay. We we start resting on our achievements or our own doing. And in the same way, we are in the same state as the previous group of people because we do not meet the demands of God. So what's the solution? What's the solution? And this is the gospel. Point four. Christ provides a perfect righteousness. And we come to God with nothing. This is the posture we need to take when we come to God, saying, God, I have nothing good. These sins that I have, they are keeping me from you. And even all these, all these rules that I keep, they're still keeping me from you because I do not keep them perfectly. The solution is 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I think we've heard this a lot. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus sin for us, because we could not keep the law, because we could not keep the rules. Christ kept the rule perfectly. Christ fulfilled the law. And God counted the righteousness of Christ. He, the, the word we use is imputed. Christ, or God gave us the righteousness of Christ, and because of that, Christ, or God no longer sees. A sinner, when he looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ. Christ is the one that provides the perfect righteousness that Christ demands. And uh, I think this is uh, really well stated by a guy named Augustus Topla- Toplotti. Uh, he wrote a really famous hymn called Rock of Ages. And I'm going to ask Ben to put up the words of that, of that song up there. And it goes like this: Not the labor of my hand can fulfill Thy lost demands. And could my zeal no respite know? And could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and Thou. Alone. And it's not the labor, it's not our own righteousness that can fulfill the law's demands. And it doesn't matter how zealous we are, it doesn't matter how enthusiastic we get about going to church or reading the Bible, that alone is not enough. And it doesn't matter if we cry a million tears for our sins, that alone is not enough. Someone else needs to come in our place None of those things could for sin atone. Christ must save, and Christ alone must save. This is what Christ is saying when he says that all of Scripture speaks of me, when he says that he came to fulfill the law. Your purpose as a child of God has been fulfilled by the Son of God. I want to look at one more thing before we, uh, we close. If We'll go to the next slide. Is anyone into astronomy here? Okay, well, if you were, you would know about a star called Polaris, Polaris. Polaris is also known as the North Star, and this is what we see here, right smack dab in the middle, we see this bright star. And what Polaris is, is if you look into the night sky, in the northern sky at night, I, don't, I know that we can't do this here uh, because of all the lights, but if we were to go outside the city, if we were to go into some dark area in the middle of the night, if we looked straight up, we would see this. We would see the North Star. And what the North Star is, is it's significant because this defines north, east, west. Or it, does, it, it is north. It, it's, they call this the true North Star because when you look into the sky, when you, when you look at that, that's true north. And it defines east, west, and south. It defines everything else that is in the sky. And if you, if you were to take camera and just turn the shutter on for like hours like four hours and if you took a picture of that we would have what we have here in this next picture is this these are star trails and as you know the earth revolves and uh and and uh if we were to just look at the where the where the stars go we'll see all these star trails and right in the middle is a North Star, and everything revolves around the North Star, if you were to look at it in, at the night in the middle of the night, in the same way Christ is our Polaris, Christ is our North Star, Christ alone defines the Bible, all of the Bible revolves around Christ for ourselves, all of our life revolves around Christ as Christians, all of Scripture points to Christ. <clears throat> All of life and all of reality is defined by Christ. Christ created the world. Christ is active in the world as King. Christ is coming, and one day his reign will be known forever, permanently. Uh, this is what Christ is. And for us today, Christ is what defines us. And we will try to define ourselves sometimes, won't we? If if, if we feel guilty, we'll we'll think... I know that I've done this sin, and we think, this is what my life is defined by, by this particular sin, or by this pattern of sin. Um, When Satan says, look at your life, and he says, look at these sins that you've done, do you take that and we go, yeah, um, that's, that's me? Or do you say something else? You say, no, that does not define me. My sin, my guilt, my shame... Those things do not define me because I am a child of God. Christ is what defines me. Or if you're on the other end and you go, you know, I have a good job, I have a good family, I do well in school, I uh, am nice to people, I don't smoke or drink or I don't, I'm not a sexual deviant or I'm not addicted to things and I, I'm so much better than every, all these other people. It's the same message. Those things do not define you. As, I, as a church, are we defined by our community? Are we defined by things we do? No, we are defined by Christ, and Christ alone defines all of reality for us. Christ came to fulfill the law. Christ is the fulfillment of everything that we are to be. God, we thank you so much for defining reality for us not through our sin but through the person and the work of christ and i just pray that this would sink into us that it would cause us to worship you god and may we see you in all of scripture may we see you in all of our um our our righteousness and even in all of our sin god and we look forward to the day when uh, we will know you fully and when we, when we see you face to face god And in the meantime, just keep us looking towards you as our North Star, as our Polaris, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.